The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this uh, evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to get our attention off of the affairs of today, the affairs of tomorrow, and on to the word and opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We know that your word is the source of absolute truth and it is the anchor of our soul. And as we study your word, we know that it is the foundation for all other arenas of thought. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Daniel, looking at uh, your plan for history, we pray that it might be a source of comfort and encouragement for us as we understand that history is the outworking of your plan and that you control history. Nothing happens that is outside of your control, despite the fact that it appears to be rather chaotic and uncertain at times. We know that it is not chaotic or uncertain in your thinking or in your plan. Father, we just commit this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. While you're turning there, one other announcement. That is just to remind you. And I do appreciate everybody's flexibility in coming tonight instead of our regular Wednesday night. And then next week, flexibility to come on Thursday night instead of Wednesday night. I don't think there will be another opportunity to challenge your orientation to your calendar uh, until March. That week of the Spring Bible Conference, we just won't have a Wednesday night class We'll just have a Friday night class and Saturday night class and Sunday night class. So uh, you can get that on your calendars. But uh, next week, Thursday night, everything else will be the same. Thursday night, then Friday night for the the, uh, Christmas party. Daniel 7.1. There we read, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind. As he lay on his bed, then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Notice, it is a summary, a summation of what he saw in that particular vision. It begins in verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up 
the great sea. We spent the last, uh, last hour looking at what it meant that the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. I made the point that we are studying prophetic literature. And in prophetic literature, especially books like Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel, and Revelation, these are books that are just loaded with symbols and symbolism. But it's not the kind of symbolism. Some people say, well, you can just make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. Like you just read this stuff and you just read these symbols and you just sort of reach up into the thin air of your mind and grab down some concept and say, well, that must mean this because that seems to make sense to me. Well, that's not how it works. There are specific guidelines and Scripture interprets itself. And as we will see in this chapter, not only... Uh, the scripture interpret itself, but Daniel is sent an angel, an angelos, which means, or malach in Hebrew, which means messenger, to interpret the dream. So not even Daniel is left guessing, not left with some sort of uh, uh, contemplation of his navel, trying to figure out just what this revelation from God means. See, God's mind is rational. That does not mean that... Um, uh, God, that we have a rationalistic view of Christianity. It means that God is a thinking God and that everything in the mind of God adheres together logically. And because He is the ultimate in rational, remember Jesus is called the Lagos in John 1 1, and Lagos in Greek means reason, word, communication, rational. It's the word from which we derive our English word logic. That God in, an, in his own thinking is inherently rational and logical, and that's the reason why God can communicate to us. And God has created man in his image, and that's why man, because of the communication ability that God has uh, given man, that's why man can understand what God has said. So God has communicated these things to be understood. That is a crucial thing. Every now and then I get in a discussion with somebody who wants to raise a point about the fact that um, something in Scripture, well, that's debated. Nobody really knows what that means. You can, you can go to the Christian bookstore and you can buy a hundred commentaries and get a hundred different views. So how can you say that it means what you say it means? Simply because you study it, you, you understand the arguments, you, you read the, the better commentaries or the better uh, uh, commentators, and you study their arguments. And just like in a, in a legal trial, I think that's why so many great uh, theologians over the ages have been all, were also trained as lawyers. You think logically, you weigh the evidence, you say there's five positions, each position has certain strengths and weaknesses, the, this is the evidence that is marshaled for each position, and you evaluate that evidence, and then you come to a conclusion. And there is certainty in that conclusion because one operates uh, on principles of logic and principles of reason and compares Scripture with Scripture, and there's going to be a tremendous difference in conclusions if the person coming to the text of Scripture believes in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God and one that doesn't believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of God. And since a vast majority of commentators don't believe in the infallibility of Scripture, then you have a problem. Furthermore, if you are amillennial in your orientation to prophecy, which means there's no literal millennium, uh, and so these things have all been fulfilled, or if you are a post-millennialist, that is going to too often 
especially because those two systems come out of Calvinism, and the biggest problem with Calvinism is it uses its system to exegete the Scripture rather than the other way around, that what happens is you use a theological system to determine what the text means instead of the text shaping your doctrinal understanding. And so since a number of commentaries are also written from uh, people who hold one of those views, that shapes their views. So that's why it's important for for pastors to go through seminary and learn how to think and analyze this. And just like a, a lawyer in a courtroom, you're marshalling the evidence and you're lining things up. Now, some things are clearly debated even among dispensationalists and premillennialists, but most things are not. In fact, it's interesting when you come to this chapter, uh, even many liberals recognize that these, thing, these symbols mean certain things, that the, um, that the bear represents Persia, for example, and the leopard represents Greece. They would admit that. But what they do with it from that point on is vastly different from what we do with it from that point on. So uh, even among liberals, there's a certain level of, of uh, agreement as to what these symbols mean because the Scripture explains the Scripture. So by comparing Scripture with Scriptures, we did last time, we were able to understand the symbols here. Now, what we have to, one thing we have to remember is that Daniel suddenly has a, or not suddenly, but in conjunction with Daniel chapter 2, is focusing on Gentile history, but not just any Gentile history. Now, we go back to, uh, in our study of the Bible, we go back to Genesis chapter 9 and 10, and we are reminded that when Noah came off the ark, he had three sons. Now, if you, I've always wondered this. The Bible only tells us about three of his sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. But it says when, when, when Noah reached 500 years of age, he had three sons. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that's when he started having them. But everybody else has sons and daughters until you come to Noah. Noah only has three sons. So I think there were other children, and these were the only ones that were believers. And they become the fathers of the three great branches of humanity. And Shem is given the privilege of being the uh, transmitter of divine revelation, specifically through, through Israel. Of course, the other great division of Shemites are the Arabs, and you have tremendous conflict uh, among, between the Arabs and the Jews, as we experience today. And the Arabs have developed their own competing uh, revelation, which is the, it's spelled different ways, but the Quran. And we're going to get into a study. We might get there Sunday morning. We're going to do a brief overview of Islam and preparation for what you're going to see while I and be studying on Wednesday night while I am teaching demonism, Satanology, and spiritual life in the Ukraine. I just hate going into a third world country and having to teach on demonism. Life is always exciting. Last time I told Jim, Jim Myers asked me to come and teach on that. I said, Jim, the last time you had me come teach, when you were in Belarus, as soon as I left... Uh, the government stepped up their persecution and everybody got called in and 
their visas were about to be revoked, and you guys went through about two years of of uh, problems with the government. Do you are you ready for that? You really want you really want me to come and teach on the angelic conflict? But during that time, we're going to have some special. Uh, Videos that we're going to show from a man named Avi Lipkin, and he is, I'm not even sure if that's his real name, he's a Native American, probably an American citizen. When he was about in the early 20s, he went to Israel. He's a member of the Israeli Defense League. He always thought, he was trained and brought up to think that Christians hated Jews. All Christians hated Jews, especially German, uh, ethnically German people just naturally hated Jews. And then he was invited through a rather circuitous route to come and visit a family in New Braunfels, Texas, a place where most of you probably never heard of. But as you can tell by the name, it was founded by the Prince of Braunfels in Germany and came over with a group of settlers in the 1850s, beautiful area of Texas. And mostly everybody there is German. In fact, a lot of them still speak German at home. And... Um, he went there and probably went to a charismatic church, and everybody there just fell all over him, hugging him and telling him how much they loved Jews and how much they loved Israel. And he had almost had a Damascus Road experience. When you listen to him, you will think at times, how can he not be saved? Because he's he's been with so many people. He's been with Zola Levitt, who's a great evangelist to the Jews. It's located out of Dallas. You don't get him on TV here, so you all probably don't know who Zola is. Uh, he has also been, he was on a um, panel discussion this last, uh, not a panel, but there was a large prophecy conference in Fort Worth, Texas this last Labor Day. And people you know, like Tommy Ice and uh, my friend Randy Price were, um, and Hal Lindsey were among those on the platform. And he spoke about what's going on in Israel. He spoke about terrorism. And this video series comes from, uh, a, it's a, Nine-hour series. Now we're not going to—you're not going to be able to see it all, but I picked the key parts in in hour and a half segments. So be prepared those nights. That um, of course, since you don't have a live person here, if you absolutely have to get up and leave early, you you may. You're not going to be uh, insulting anybody who's actually standing here, but they're an hour and a half long, and they were filmed last. July or June at a church in Odessa, Texas. And you would think they were filmed after September 11th. I mean, this guy has been uh, trying to warn America that something like September 11th was going to happen for about six or seven years. And the information that he has is just incredible. He has a lot of insight into what's going on today, what uh, what the Arabs are doing, what what the real truth is, that uh, all about Islam and that Islam, as we'll see maybe this Sunday, is not a peaceful religion. It is a religion of war. It's always been a religion of war, and uh, we are just being uh, deceived over and over again by the national news media. You can understand the political reason why our political leaders would want to go along with that because it avoids a certain number of diplomatic problems, but it's not a, a, a religion of peace. Anyway, there's always been this battle between the Jews and the Arabs, and the Shemites were to be the transmitters of revelation. 
Then you had the Hamites. Now, the Hamites are not the blacks. The Hamites, Ham was the father of all of the Asians. Uh, most of the Indians, they're really kind of a combination of, of Japhetic and uh, Hamitic peoples. Um, the Sumerians, ancient Sumerians, who were dark-headed people. The Egyptians. And many other people were Hamitic. And the Hamites were neither blessed nor cursed. By, they were also, he was also the father of the Canaanites. And they were the only ones that were cursed by Noah. Just the Canaanites. And um, the descendants of Ham spread out. And these were the founders of great civilization. You think of the Sumerian civilization and the civilization in China. The ancient civilization in China and India, these were incredible civilizations, and they developed a, a, a technology, a raw technology that is phenomenal. We do not know how the Egyptians were able to build those massive pyramids with the raw tools that they had. We can't duplicate that with the, with the same tools. We, we can't, can't even approach it. We have no idea how they did it or many other um, ancient tribes. And so there was something genetic about the skills that Hamitic peoples were able to uh, develop in building and developing tremendous things with a raw technology. But it was Japhetic, the Japhetic people, who were to build upon that and develop civilization. So that Shem was going to, according to Noah's prophecy, dwell in the tents of Japheth. And that is a metaphor that indicated that it was going to be Japhetic civilization that would provide the umbrella of protection and security for the Semites, specifically Israel. And we see that developing in the whole prophecy that relates to the times of the Gentiles, which began at this time in 600 B.C., the times of the Gentiles. Now, as we go through history we see that there is causation in history. And we've, I've used in the past the diagram like a house. You've got two floors, upstairs, downstairs. And upstairs is where you have your universals. Downstairs are the particulars or the details. And it's the universals that give meaning to the details. And down here in the details you have... Uh, uh, you have decisions, you have all of the events of history, you have people, but up here you have absolutes, moral, ethical concepts. God is located upstairs. And um, all meaning comes from upstairs. Now, what's happened in modern, Amer modern Western European thought is that after Kant, there's a brick wall built between the two so that you can't really know universals or absolutes anymore. But see, history is nothing more than a collection of events. Here's a quote you'll love. Henry Ford said that history was nothing more than one damn thing after another. <laughs> see, that history is just a... When we look at it from inside the box here, it looks like it's just one event after another. And what gives meaning to it? Well, you only have meaning if you have can look at it from God's perspective. Down here you have economics. 
you have uh, geography, you have military things. You know, you, you can do a whole study on just military causation, rise and fall of nations, just on, for military reasons. You have socio-political events that are causation. But these are all secondary causes. But you will study history in any secular school, maybe even in many Christian schools, and there's a complete uh, denial, or they just simply ignore the fact that there's something greater that moves and causes history. And that's what we see in Daniel uh, 7, verse 2. Daniel said, I saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. And we saw last time that the four winds of heaven is a term that is used in Scripture. It's used in Ezekiel. We looked at a passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. We looked at Zechariah. We looked at Revelation 5. And we saw that the term winds is used to describe angels and angelic forces and not simply elect angels. God uses fallen angels. I don't have time to look at it now, but if you look at 1 Kings chapter 22, where God uses a demon to deceive Ahab, to bring about Ahab's death in battle. God uses the demonic forces and the fallen angels to bring about causation in history. And I really think that's more of what we have here than uh, elect angels. The four winds of heaven stir up, and we saw that last time that the uh, Hebrew word giach that is used here, excuse me, the Aramaic word giach that's used here, has the idea of not just of stirring up, but it's building a tempest. This is an impressive storm. As Daniel is lying there in his bed, these winds come up, massive winds, 150, 180, 200 mile per hour winds that build waves of, of uh, 80, 100, 120, 150 feet in height. And there's this tremendous uh, tempest that is developed, and it's history. And all of a sudden, what he's seeing is that at this stage in history, at 600 B.C., the angelic forces, specifically demonic forces, are acting upon humanity because that's what the Great Sea refers to. It is a picture of fallen humanity that is, that is at the mercy of the forces of heaven and, and, and is deceived by, I mean, the forces of Satan and deceived by Satan and deceived by, by the demons, and they are acting upon fallen man, and fallen man is unstable, just as the, the, the ocean is, and it can be tossed to and fro in any, any way the winds blow it. And this is fallen humanity that are the victims, in a uh, true sense, of satanic influence and satanic ideas. So we see that this is the ultimate causation in history. Now, that means when we look out on the scene and we see things going on like all of the bombing that just took place within the last week, uh, terrorist activity going on in Israel, we look at what happened on, on 9-11, we know that behind the scenes there are demonic forces at work. Now, you have to be careful there because what happens is there's always some body who comes along and wants to distort that and make that the causative issue. The demon forces are operating. God uses them on, on human history. There is another dimension, but that doesn't absolve mankind of responsibility. They're acting, but man is choosing to go along with that. And so the human race is, is not just some passive pawn that's being uh, acted upon exclusively by these demonic forces, but that these demonic forces are involved 
And this is all part of what is going on in history. So we see that Jesus Christ controls history, but he does so not always immediately, but immediately or intermediately through using angelic forces and, and demons. So Daniel sees this stirring up the great sea, this, this sea of fallen humanity. And out of this sea arises four great beasts, verse 3. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Now, I want you to look at this. We'll just make a couple of observations that as we go through these verses, and we go down to, uh, let's go on down to verses 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So we have these. These are the first three beasts, and the fourth one is going to represent the revived Roman Empire. We won't get there tonight. A couple of observations. First of all, notice they're all... Man-eating animals. These are all violent animals. These are all carnivores. These are destructive animals. And they brought fear into Israel. Second thing we should note by contrast is that the kingdoms of man, the kingdom of man is now being represented by beasts. Whereas in contrast, in Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom of man was represented by something of value, by valuable metals. In Daniel chapter 2, we had the picture of a man. And it's man in all of his glory as man sees him. And in Daniel chapter 2, the image is looking at the inception of each kingdom. Because when each kingdom comes up, we have man has great hopes for the product of human viewpoint that this new kingdom is going to bring in peace and stability and is going to advance technology and take us to the next level. And all our hopes are placed in what man is going to do. But... What happens is man is a sinner. See, man forgets that inherently man is evil. He's not good. And so he can't solve the problems. That man's kingdoms are eventually going to go bad. And eventually their sin, the sin nature is going to become apparent and they are going to lose their uh, humanness and become ultimately evil and destructive and like a beast. So Daniel chapter 7 looks at the end result of those kingdoms that they have become bestial and they have become uh, destructive and they, uh, in fact, uh, destroy mankind. The third observation is that the beasts come up from fallen, uncontrollable, unstable humanity. They are the product of mankind, so they represent the human race. As we come to this first kingdom, Come to the first kingdom, we see that the um, first animal is the first beast, is a lion that had the wings of an eagle. Now, it was standard for a winged lion in the ancient world to be a representative of Babylon. Anybody who read this immediately thought of Babylon. Um, the 
Assyrian Empire prior to uh, Babylon also used these um, winged lions. And last year I was in the British Museum and had you could see them in all the different engravings from Assyria of these winged lions. And so anybody who saw that would think that the uh, these uh, uh, would think of, of a winged lion as a representative of Babylon. Now, why is it that that God uses beasts here? We know from verse 17 that these beasts are human kings. And and by the time we get down to verse 17, the interpreting angel explains to Daniel just who these are and that these four beasts are going to represent the same four world empires of Daniel chapter 2, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, one of the reasons that these first two, these beasts are used is because of uh, how they're viewed by the Jews. I mean, this was a time in history when uh, bears and lions were common in the land. We can think of a passage back in First uh, Samuel 17 when David is going to fight Goliath, and this is one of the great stories when proving that David is going to be the or, or really giving. Uh, his credentials, because he's just prior to 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 16, Samuel anoints David as king. And as the anointed, that is the Mashiach king, he has got to demonstrate. See, that was done in private. And as I've always said, what God does in private, he always demonstrates in public. And so he's going to give a public dem- demonstration and authentication of the anointing of David. And that takes place when David destroys Goliath, who... And that passage is also a type of Satan. So David goes to Saul, and here's this young man, 16, 17 years of age, no military training, shows up, and, and he sees these two armies lined up on opposing hills crossing across a valley, and this big lumbering giant who's almost 10 feet tall comes out, and he ch- issues a challenge day after day to the Jews, and they don't respond. And nobody wants to go fight him. Everybody's caring. Nobody's trusting God. So David goes to Saul and says, I'm going to do it. We can't allow this man to insult Israel anymore. And Saul says, well, what are your credentials? So in verse 34 we read, But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came, and the Hebrew uses sort of a gnomic verb here indicating that this didn't happen one time. It was like whenever this happened. When I'm out with the sheep and it's just me, my shepherd's staff, and my sling, whenever this would happen, whenever a lion or a bear would come and take a lamb from the flock, I went out after him. Just David going out. But, but it points out, what I'm pointing out is that, that it was common for Jews to be, for, for lions and bears to be marauding animals. And they were vicious and this was something that the people were out in the country were afraid of. But not, not David. He would go out and rescue, rescue the lamb from his mouth. I always loved that. He would just go take that lamb right out of the lion's mouth. Now, you can just think about that as a, the kind of courage that demonstrated. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard. This is good, good hand-to-hand, up-close-and-personal combat. You know, he wasn't sitting back at 300 yards with a uh, high-powered rifle with a um, high-powered scope 
taken out this lion. He would just got right in there and grabbed him by his beard and then took his his uh, uh, shepherd's staff. And they also carried a short rod and he probably that they would use as a club. And he would probably take that and just brain the lion. And what gave him his courage was he trusted God. So, 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 37, demonstrates the fact that lions and bears were typical in Israel and were a problem. Proverbs 28, 15, though, gives us a little better insight into the significance of this imagery of using a, uh, a lion and a bear. Proverbs 28:15 we read, Like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. And this is the idea in Daniel chapter 7, is that these rulers, these kingdoms, are like lions and bears. They are voracious. They are cruel. They are mean. They're powerful. They are carnivorous. They are destructive. And that is the picture. It's not a complementary picture of mankind and not a, not a positive view of these, these empires. And this is the, the paradox here. God, what God is doing is showing by this imagery what these great empires are really like. We look at Rome and we look at Greece and we look at the positive things they contributed culturally. And God says, yes, but let me tell you how I look at these empires and how I look at these nations. See, the paradox is that man-centered culture is always anti-man. It always deteriorates. It may start off good, but it always deteriorates into something that destroys man. And that's why the Bible always has to be the starting point. It is when you build a culture that is rooted in a Judeo-Christian framework like the United States was. Now, I'm not saying the United States was a Christian nation. Nations can't be Christians. And there were many other influences. But the predominant influence in the 1600s and 1700s was Scripture. And people thought within a framework of theism and a general framework of, of biblical truth, even if they weren't Christians. They still believed that there was a God. They believed the Ten Commandments. They believed in morality and ethics. And that provided a foundation for our society and for our culture. And that's the impact that, that Christians have is holding back through, through the, through the uh, invisible witness of the church-age believer, when you have enough believers to form a remnant in the land, then what that does is hold back the onslaught of evil. But when the, the uh, pivot of believers shrinks, then what happens is there's a smaller and smaller influence on the nation, and eventually the nation can collapse on the inside, and its bestialness, its brutality will become... Uh, more and more evident. There's another lesson to be learned from all that, and that is that it's from out of the sea that the animal comes. And the sea is fallen humanity stirred up by demonic forces. So we can create a, uh, a formula that fallen humanity plus demonic forces equals uh, animal behavior by mankind. And this is a principle of history that whenever you have large masses of people, just watch the news sometime when they're focusing on those large masses of, of Arabs and Palestinians rioting in the streets. And think about the fact that, that fallen humanity plus demonic influence always yields uh, animal behavior. And they are a classic example to that, that when the masses become stirred by Satan, uh, the amount of violence that they can do in this destructive capacity is 
almost unmeasured. And one of the things we ought to look at here, since man is being portrayed by animals, is at, perhaps is to ask the question, what is the difference between men and animals? What makes the difference between men and animals? Both have souls. The, the word nephesh in Hebrew is used of animal life and human life. It is not used of plant life. Plant life, is, in the scriptural terminology, is not life. Therefore, somebody has questioned me at times, and I've made the argument that there cannot be any death prior to Adam's sin. If there's any death before Adam's sin, that's a death of an animal or a death of a man. If there's any death prior to Adam, and see, that's what you would have to have. If the fossils predated Adam, Neanderthal man, Paleolithic man, Java man, any of the animals, Eohippus for the horses, any of the other animals... If any of the animals and the fossils uh, were created, see, they had to die to create a fossil. So if any of those fossils were created prior to Adam's fall, then death as a principle, as a reality in creation, is not the result of Adam's fall. In 1 Corinthians 15, the issue is physical resurrection. So when it talks about death in 1 Corinthians 15, it's not talking about spiritual death. It's talking about spiritual death. Because it is spiritual death, I mean, I mean, he's talking about physical death because it is physical death that is conquered by resurrection. And there in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told, in Adam I'll die. That's physical death because of Adam's sin. And physical death is the consequence of sin. If there's no sin, then there's no consequence, and that affects all of creation. And that's clear from Romans chapter 8, which talks about the fact that all of creation, that is the entire realm of nature, groans under the curse and is waiting redemption. Because Adam's sin reverberated and sent shockwaves through all of nature, it's through, through all of the animal kingdom. The, the, the animal kingdom changed. But plants could be harvested prior to that and, quote, die because plants weren't life. Nefesh is never applied to, to uh, plants. It's only applied to animals. Only animals and man. But the difference between man and animals, they both have nefesh, but man and man alone is created in the image and likeness of God. That's what makes the difference between man and animals. So animals operate on instinct, and man, because he's made in the image of God, has conscience. And conscience is what enables man to tell the difference between right and wrong, and he has volition. Animals do not operate on volition. They have, all their behavior is learned behavior. It is, it's learned, I mean, it's based on instinct, with very little learned behavior in the sense of volitional action. It is instinctive behavior. They do what they, what they have been bred to do, and they operate out of their genetic background, and a dog is going to act like a dog, and if he doesn't, it's because he's been trained. And there's been some kind of external training done, but it's not based on their volition. On the other hand, man's behavior is all learned behavior. There's no such thing as instinct in man. It has been demonstrated through a number of studies that there are no instincts in man. An instinct in a dog is he's always going to go, I mean, a male dog's always going to lift his leg. You take a male dog out, and he smells the urine of another dog, he will lift his leg. He doesn't think about it. It's bred into him. That's part of his genetic makeup. But there is not any behavior at all, not, not sex, not eating. There is no behavior 
in man that is instinctive. All behavior in man is taught and is learned. And so we want to have about four points on the doctrine of learned behavior patterns. I'm going to be developing this for a while because this is crucial to understanding behavior and problems that develop in life. Learned behavior patterns. First point, man is not born with any instinctive behavior patterns as are animals. Instinct is merely an inbred behavior pattern genetically determined and therefore not volitional. It's nature, not nurture. That's the popular way of expressing it. Point number two, man, though, is born with a sin nature which predisposes us towards sin. We're born with a sin nature, and that sin nature has an area of weakness and an area of strength. And some of you have an area of sin, uh, an area of weakness in your sin nature that makes you uh, prone to mental attitude sins. You may be prone to arrogance. You may be prone to uh, self-righteousness, have a trend towards asceticism. And so you, are, you just can't understand how somebody else may succumb continuously to more overt sins or more immoral sins or some of the flashier sins. And, and those people just can't understand how you can be such a self-righteous, uh, bigoted person and have your nose in the air all the time. See, everybody's a little different. And uh, we all have our areas of, of weakness. But th- we all have trends in our sin nature. No trends can change over time. And everybody has a trend, and the issue is that you don't have to exercise that trend. You don't have to exercise that area of weakness. You can choose not to. And as a believer, under the power of the Holy Spirit, applying the Word of God, we can overcome those sins. But man is born with a sin nature which predisposes him towards sin, and he activates his sin nature through his volition. You activate your sin nature through your volition. It is not just instinctive. Therefore, we are culpable and accountable for our sinful decisions. Third point, as we grow and mature, we develop habits of behavior, habits to control or manipulate our environment, to, uh, including the people around us, in order to get what we want. Just watch your little two-year-old grandson or your little two-year-old kid and watch how they learn to manipulate you to get what they want. We develop, then, then as we begin to learn those little things when we're small, they develop into habits. And we develop certain habits for handling pressure, handling adversity, looking at life. We have habits of thought and habits of action. And then what happens is we grow up and um, we get married. Now we're, now we're living in a home with somebody else who's got a different sin nature with different area of strength, different area of weakness. And see, that, that's not a problem-solving situation. That is a, often a problem-generating situation because what you now develop is friction between those two sin natures. That's one of the greatest sanctifying influences in Scripture. That's why it's not good for man to be alone because it's in the context of being with somebody else and living in marriage that uh, God often intensifies the whole procedure of sanctification. And the reason most marriages fail is because one or both refuses to give up some trend of the sin nature and deal with and, and submit to the authority of God. So we have these learned behavior patterns. Now there's I'm still working on terminology here, but this dynamic consists of a minus R or a sin nature based 
learned behavior pattern. And until the day you're saved, all of our learned behavior patterns either come from the area of strength, which is human good, or the area of weakness, which is sin. All of our, all of our behavior patterns come from that. And the whole process of sanctification is to unlearn all those behavior patterns that we uh, inculcated and drilled into ourselves from the moment we were in diapers all the way up till we were a teenager or 20s or 30s. And it's hard to unlearn all of that, but that's the whole process of sanctification. So that's the fourth point. The process of sanctification or spiritual growth is to unlearn these minus R learned behavior patterns and replace them with plus R learned behavior patterns. So just four quick points on a doctrine we'll develop more in the days and weeks to come on learned behavior patterns. Now, the basic difference between men and animals is the fact that man is made in the image of God, has a conscience, knows the difference from right and wrong, and has volition, and is culpable and responsible for those decisions. Animals don't have a conscience. They're not aware of things being morally right or wrong. And so the significance here in Daniel 7 of kings or empires being referred to as beasts is that they are they're behaving unconscionably. They have no standard for right or wrong. They just operate on whatever makes them feel good at the moment, and it becomes self-destructive. And as the society continues to deteriorate, then it becomes a man-killing monster. And ultimately, that those sin nature trends of arrogance take over in any civilization. We'll look at these empires we're going to look at. Babylon, look at Media Persia, Greece, and Rome, and see how eventually internal rot set in because of arrogance and because of sin. They might have started out great, but they end up with internal rot and chaos because of the fact that they start acting uh, like animals without a conscience, without consistent right or wrong. Well, let's look at the next verse, Daniel 3. Daniel 7, 3, 4, beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Verse 17 identifies these as great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Then in verse 4 we read, The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Now, what's going on in this verse? First of all, we see that the, it's, the first beast is like a lion and has the wings of an eagle. So, now, it's interesting how through history, different um, nations have different animals that symbolize that nation. Great Britain is often symbolized by a, by a lion. Now, I'm not saying that that's what this verse is talking about. This verse is not referring to Great Britain or America, but America is represented by an eagle, and Great Britain is represented by a lion. And if you think about it, Russia is also thought of as a bear. And what kind of animals are these that nations choose as their mascots? They are violent, predatory animals. Just sort of a historical note for those of you who, who uh, history could have been different. Frank, if um, Benjamin Franklin had had his way, he wanted America to have a turkey for, their, for its mascot. 
because he thought the turkey was industrious. Turkey was smart and wily, cagey, didn't get caught out in the woods. It was hard to hunt and uh, was good at avoiding the, uh, the hunter. And he wanted to avoid that uh, predatory aspect that was usually associated with these uh, national mascots. So Babylon is represented by this combination of a winged lion, and that was typical in the ancient world. They had, as I said earlier, taken that imagery over from the Assyrian Empire that preceded it. As a matter of fact, all of the brick that Nebuchadnezzar uh, used to construct his palace not only had his name on it, but also had animals uh, portrayed on them, and many of them were winged lions. And so this was, a, as soon as Daniel would talk about this, people would immediately identify a winged lion with uh, the Babylonian Empire. The significance of the wings is to uh, indicate power, as in Isaiah 8, verse 8. Well, Daniel says, I kept looking until its wings were plucked kept looking until its wings were plucked, which indicates that something happens to change the nature of the beast. Something happened that removed its beastliness. It says the wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. It is changed from its beastly, beastly character to a human character. And, of course, we saw that happen. That was fulfilled in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, when he was so arrogant, thinking that he had get, received all this power, God had warned him that if he continued in his arrogance, God would humble him and turn him into giving the mind of an animal for a period of seven years, and that happened. And it was at that time that, that at the end of that seven years that Nebuchadnezzar was saved. He was regenerated. He was given the heart of a man. There's a change that takes place. And after Nebuchadnezzar died... In 562 B.C., never again did Babylon go out and uh, expand its empirical borders. The empire never grew again. It just began to deteriorate from that point on. The um, A couple of interesting things to note about Babylon is that there was the first people in history to keep a standing army. The Egyptians didn't keep a standing army. The Hittites didn't keep a standing army. The um, Assyrians never kept a standing army. The Babylonians are the first to keep a standing army. So you see there's a major change in history taking place with the Babylonian Empire. They were also the first to uh, mint silver coinage and to develop private banking. And they were the first people to have an extensive credit system. And that eventually became a problem for them because during the last 20 years of the empire, they had uh, uh, increasing and excessive uh, inflation. And that ate away at the interior of the empire and its, and, and its stability. But it's also interesting because in the book of Revelation, Babylon is, as a symbol for evil is also the center of uh, finance and commerce during the tribulation. So this is something that is characteristic of Babylon. So Babylon is the first empire. It is the head of gold. And it deteriorates after the death of Nebuchadnezzar until they are defeated by the next empire, the chest and arms of silver, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And here in Daniel 7, this is represented by another beast in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. This is a lopsided bear. 
Looks like he has arthritis or some problem, but he walks lopsided. Why? That's because it's a combination empire. The Medes and the Persians, and the Persians were one side, and they were much stronger than the other side. So that's, that's the picture there. They're resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, now that they are the winds, that they are the angelic forces. They're commanding the beast. This is the force of causation in history. Arise and devour much meat. So the, this empire is told to go out and to capture, ter- take territory to control mankind. Now, in many cases in the Bible, as we have seen, the lion and the bear represent two of the most vicious animals in the ancient world and the most common that, that they would think of. So the representative here of Babylon as a lion and Medo-Persia as a bear indicates how powerful they were and indicates uh, how vicious they were from God's perspective. So we see that as the demonically whipped up sea uh, first ejects the beast, the lion that is Babylon, then it ejects the beast that is um, that is Medo-Persia. And this relates to uh, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, as well as verse 20, that the, where we'll talk about a ram, which you saw with two horns, represents the king of Media and Persia. So this beast, this second beast, isn't identified by Daniel or by the angel, but it is identified and will be identified in the next vision in chapter 8. So we need to keep that in mind. And this, remember, this was written... Um, uh, this happened at the. Uh, uh, this was written. This vision was given before, just a few years before, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. Verse five: The beast is the bear, and it has three ribs in its mouth. Three ribs in its mouth. Now, what do these three ribs refer to? Well, these three ribs represent the conquests. Of Cyrus. Cyrus was the uh, first king, just as Nebuchadnezzar is the first king of the Babylonian Empire and represents the Babylonian Empire, uh, just as uh, Caesar was the first emperor and represents Rome, so uh, Cyrus represented the Medo Persian Empire. And these three ribs refer to his conquest. Before he defeated Babylon, he first defeated the Medes in 550 BC. Then he moved west and he conquered the Lydian Empire in Turkey or Asia Minor between uh, 550 and 539 B.C. And then he moved south and conquered the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So these three ribs represent the three empires that Cyrus defeated. Then we read that it has these the three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, that is the angelic forces, arise and devour much meat. So they are authorized to go out and to conquer much land. And this indeed happened, but before we get there, we need it because it must be, that story must be told in conjunction with the next beast. Let's go ahead and look at verse 6, and then we'll come back and see the, see the story. So the bear defeated the powers of of Lydia, the Medes, and the Chaldean Empire. 
Then verse 6 we read, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now this leopard is going to represent Greece. Now, the reason a leopard is chosen is because of its speed, because it's so fast. And Greece, had, was at least the Greek city-states, had been around for many years, but they were isolated. They were on the Greek peninsula, and they, they lived in city-states, and the Spartans didn't care about the Athenians, and the Athenians didn't care about those living in Thebes, and they were isolated. They weren't, there was no unified Greek state until... Uh, Philip of Macedon started uh, conquering, and then he died, and his son Alexander took over. And Alexander conquered the world from Greece to India in five years. That's the speed. It took Cyrus 35 years to conquer and put together the Persian Empire, but Alexander did it in five years, so that's the speed that is represented here. But, of course, we can't think about the Greeks uh, without thinking about their defeat of the Persian Empire. So when we come to Persia, talk about Persia, we need to do a little study on their history. And this is crucial. And since we are about out of time, I don't want to get into uh, a study of the Greek and Persian wars that brought us the uh, word marathon into our present vocabulary and had some of the greatest battles of all of history, some of the most significant battles of all of history. And it's important as background to understand and to see the dynamic of the angels stirring up the winds. So we'll stop here before we get into Persian history. Come back next time and look at the history of the beast and its relationship to the leopard and how God works through these empires in ancient history. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to see how you work in history. That just as you worked in the history of the ancient world, you are working today. So we know that despite the chaos and despite the threats, despite the insecurity, we know that you are in control. We know that you have provided the ultimate solution through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins and that we are saved simply by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the insight it gives us, and we pray that, that we will be challenged by the things that we have studied to realize that we as believers can relax because we are in an intimate union with the God of history, the God of the universe who controls history. And therefore, there is nothing for us to be afraid of, nothing for us to worry about, for our lives are not our own. We have been bought with a price, and we live for your glory. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.